0: Hey there, and welcome to the Asia Healthcare Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Chan, and in today's episode, I'm joined by Doug Corley. Doug is the CEO and co-founder of DHB Global, an investment platform that bridges promising and innovative healthcare solutions with their next stage of growth. This involves working with innovators and startups to find the right strategic partners for them, and helping to facilitate cross-border commercialization of their biopharma technologies into China. In addition to his main work, he also helps mentor startups through a number of organizations, and you can frequently find him on the road, speaking at different events and sharing his experiences in working in China. I had so much fun talking to him, and he was so willing to share his insights, so I'm pretty sure you will benefit from this conversation as well. So without further ado, hey, welcome to the show, Doug. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. Well, I'm excited to catch up with you and learn more about the work you do and how you started DHB Global, but uh, before we get into that, could you tell us a bit about yourself, where you're from, and your journey up to now in setting
1: up DHB Global? Sure. Um, so, I'll give you kind of the, the uh, high-level overview and then go a little bit into some of the details. So, from a small town in the States, did a degree in biomedical sciences and moved to China eight years ago and, you know, really fell in love with everything that was happening here and worked, you know, in laboratories in hospital settings and basic research, and then learned about the business of healthcare, really trying to figure out what the lifeblood of the healthcare industry was in China, which turned out to be finance. And progressively have moved my way away from some of the research and more into the application of the technical knowledge that I've gained into, you know, really building solutions. So a little bit deeper explanation is graduated uh, before every, everything healthcare. I was actually a, a classical pianist. I went to college oh. on a piano scholarship. Uh, and when I decided that I wasn't going to do that anymore, I decided to transfer and started doing all of my biomedical sciences uh, studies, did a double major, double minor, and decided that medicine and, and healthcare was something I was fascinated by. Um, had an opportunity to come to China, and I, I took it because China-U.S. relations appeared to be the most important relationship of my lifetime, uh, and the smartest people in my part of America didn't know too much um, and I thought that was a bit of a shame. Uh, so I moved to China and just wanted to learn the language, figure out how, how the culture was different. Kind of my, my resting thesis is that people are the same. You know, that what makes people different, uh, is their rituals or their cultural rituals. Uh, so everybody wants a better life for their children than they had. We can all agree on this, but culture kind of defines what that looks like. And so in China, I was curious how that was different than in America. And healthcare is something we can all also agree on. You know, you can have all the money in the world, but if you're sick, you know, you're not really going to enjoy it. So came at a pretty unique time in China. It was just after kind of the 08 boom days. And, uh, you know, now we're kind of in this this um, financial slump where there there seems to be a bit of a, a drought in VC capital. Um, but it, it's been an absolutely fascinating uh, journey to, to this part of Beijing and, and to this part of the world. Wow, that sounds pretty amazing.
0: You've shared a lot that I wanted to unpack, actually. There's so much in there. (laughs) First of all, um, your background, being a classical pianist, what made you decide you don't want to go down that path and uh, decide to study uh, biomed and the science side?
1: Well, so I started playing piano at the age of four. I had phenomenal teachers. And then I got a a piano scholarship. And when I was finishing up my degree, uh, my professor had... He won two international piano competitions. And so he was a pretty pretty gifted musician himself. Um, and he told me pretty bluntly what the fate uh, of a PhD classical pianist looks like today. And he said, you know, you better be happy eating ramen noodles and making $30,000 a year forever, uh, unless you go and win everything. So short version is the industry is just very different today than it used to be. And my father's just retired, but he was a pediatric endocrinologist. And so, and, you know, diabetes and growth hormone disorders. So I was always around medicine. Always viewed it as just a passion, something you do because you really enjoy it. That's always how he approached his his job. Um, and so, uh, as soon as I realized that I didn't want to be a professional musician, I knew exactly where to go.
0: Hmm, interesting. Um, a lot of us get inspired by our parents and people who are close to us. And I guess, especially your dad, has such a meaningful job. So, I guess that's, that was a big influencing factor in your life then.
1: Yeah, very much.
0: Hmm, okay. The next thing I picked up was you mentioned the reason you picked China, or at least one of the reasons, was because the U.S.-China relationship was important in your lifetime. Could you maybe talk a little bit about
1: that? Yeah, so my first exposure to anything about China uh, was in high school. And I just remember everybody talking about East meets West and this culture clash and the, the Hong Kong handover and, and all this sort of stuff. And we actually, in my in my prep high school, we read a little bit of Laozi and, you know, traditional Chinese philosophy. And it just really struck me as a different way of solving the same problems that we look at in America. Um, so that was my initial interest. Why do I think it's important? You know, in '08, everybody was talking about the growth of China and how it's this super important economy and it's, you know, China's taken over the world. And You know, the smartest and most successful people in my hometown, Omaha, Nebraska, may have done business, but they didn't really understand the culture. Um, and especially in my part of America, it's a very red state. They had, you know, a 1980s view of China. Um, uh, my, I went to a, one of the better high schools, uh, Creighton Prep, uh, and they only taught Latin and Spanish, German, French, Italian. Zero Asiatic languages. And I just thought that was a sign of the times, you know? That part of America had always done well historically, uh, but Europe was no longer the economic powerhouse, but they were still kind of stuck in the 80s. So it was pretty obvious to me that there was a lot of stuff changing in Asia, and China was the driver behind that. And that was as much as I could figure out. Um, you know, still today it's hard to, to learn about China online, but back in those days, you go to Xinhua and Taixin, and you read the English language uh, version, uh, and you, you really didn't learn much. Um, so it was really up to me to just Say I'm I'm gonna struggle and just make my way there and and see what I can figure out while I'm in China. And so that that was that was what spurred me along to just make the flight and 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 worry about the language and comforts after.
0: Really interesting. So so what year was that when you decided to buy a plane ticket and move to China? Was it
1: was it uh, Beijing where you landed? Uh, so I graduated January uh, sorry December 2010, and I moved to China January 2011. Okay, uh, and I was initially in Dalian. Uh, I was there for about nine months and then I moved to Beijing. Oh, okay. Why, why the nine months in Dalian? Uh, it was the easiest way to enter the country. Um, it was a small town, relatively speaking. Um, and I didn't know anybody there, uh, which meant I wasn't going to lean on an expat circle, you know, where I wanted to learn the language. And I thought the best way to do that would be to just throw myself in the deep end. Um, not advised really because it's, it's tough. And, uh, you know, you eat the same few dishes because you learn how to say them. Uh, and everything else comes later. But that, that was the reason why Dalian. And it worked out pretty well. It's a, it's a gorgeous city. Uh, it still holds a special place in my heart. I still go back every couple of years because of Summer Davos, which is hosted there. But yeah, it, it was kind of an interesting time to be there. All of the big multinationals were kind of in their heyday. Uh, I think Firestone Tires and a couple of the other big multinationals in the region. Um. So just met expats. We'd been there 10, 20 years and some of that had only been there a few months. Um, so really kind of a changing of the guard. So you spent, I guess, the
0: first nine months to a year mm-hmm. really studying the language. Do you speak
1: in fluent Mandarin now? or uh, Fluent is a relative term. <laughs> um, I, I speak enough Mandarin to very comfortably get around. Uh, I can give professional presentations. I can give lectures. Um, but there's always more to learn. Uh, yeah, but I've, you know, I've, I've never done the HSK, never really needed to, but you know, like I, I can read and understand about medical things, uh, and some basic finance things for, for term sheets and, um, you know, IPOs, these sorts of things in, in Mandarin, but nothing really about politics or history yet. It It's just such a traditional way of writing. Yeah, Yeah.
0: That's understandable. Um, okay. Yeah. So after learning the language, after coming to Dalian and then moving to Beijing, what did you do next? Yeah, so I moved
1: to Beijing, uh, and was really fortunate. I got a, I got three positions concurrently. The, the first post that I got was at, uh, Chinese Academy of Sciences, and I was working there in the immunology department, uh, as a research assistant, kind of doing a, a handful of things, uh, doing some basic research, publishing papers myself, uh, I should say co-authoring, doing a lot of the writing for the reports, doing some of the analysis. And then also helping some of the postdocs with with their placements, helping to do uh, government grant writing. The second job that I had, and these two are pretty related, was a clinical research position at 301 Military Hospital in the hepatobiliary cancer department. And then concurrent to that was at Peking Union Medical College Hospital, or in Chinese it's Xiehe, uh, in the cardiovascular department. So... Really just running the gamut of what's going right and wrong in healthcare in China. So what does clinical research look like for chronic disease, including heart disease, diabetes, uh, secondary to heart disease, and then cancer, specifically HCC, which is a major, major issue. And, you know, what are some of the hospitals and government programs trying to do? 301 is kind of a unique hospital in that way.
0: Mm, Okay. So both of these are government hospitals, right?
1: Public. Yeah. So 301 is a military hospital. Yeah. Xiehe is a public hospital, and Chinese Academy of Sciences was not a hospital. It was just a, a basic uh, science laboratory.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, wow. And then tell me about how that experience was for you, and then how that led to you just starting your own business.
1: Sure. So I've worked in those three jobs concurrently for three years. It was really interesting, because I was the only expat there. mm mm-hmm. um, and I was like, I was the only dude that spoke English. Um, so going to the canteen at, at Zhongkui'an was a lot of fun. I always got to practice my Mandarin, and then you go back to the lab, and everybody's coming up to you and, and you know cheerfully uh, trying to speak with you in English, and and you're forcing Chinese because you want to practice more. <laughs> I learned a lot. I was really just thoroughly impressed. I I'd, I'd gone to a, a very strong university, Creighton University, uh, and they pride themselves on you know strong research students. But man, the level of dedication and just intellect that I was working with right away, like 301, those guys would literally sleep in their office four nights a week mm-hmm. uh, and and work from, you know, 6 or 7 a.m. till 2 a.m. every day. Uh, they would have food delivered. They would have, you know, a uh, they would have like a treadmill in the office. So, like they do anything they could to just be more efficient and mm-hmm. get more work done. And it was just a level of dedication I had never seen before. I was floored. But that, so I learned what was kind of going right and wrong. Um, I then worked at UFH for about nine months, give or take. And that was to learn about policy and the business of healthcare. And that was in elder care. Uh, so we worked to get them JCI accredited. And it was really interesting because that was the first time that I really started to get a feel for how, how the business of healthcare works. And that was what pushed me into starting my own thing was, you know, it's one thing to have a theoretical knowledge, but to see how a business is built and to see how drugs are developed and and how a a new department is being uh, structured out to solve such a big epidemiological issue like elder patients in China, uh, that really opened my eyes. Uh, And so that really led me into wanting to do my own thing. Uh, But I didn't take any business courses in college. So after I finished up at UFH, it was, uh, I was just kind of finding my way. So putting together events. I had a lot of friends finishing med school or PhD programs. And then it was really just, you know, hey, Doug, uh, we're curious to learn more about X in China. Do you know anybody? Uh, It was literally testing my network. Um, Mm -hmm. Do I know anybody in China doing these things or companies interested in this kind of overseas technology? Uh, And slowly but surely structuring out my expertise and making clear what I can do and what I can't do. So uh, trial and error is is the short version.
0: That's interesting. Okay, so UFH is United Family Health. Is that right? Is yes. That, that's yep. a private practice in China. Correct. Mm, okay. And then, so you found yourself, would it be right to say you found yourself being maybe the only connection a lot of people in the States, like, like you said, your friends have to China, and then that's how they kind of reached out to you and because they're they also curious about China and how things work there?
1: Yeah, I, I think it was, you know, uh, there's a program at uh, Nebraska Medical Center, UNMC, uh, that was trying to bridge the two. And so it was really through that that I started to learn about how some of the technology transfer or just exchanges happen. Uh, and then from there, it was just a natural progression to say, okay, well, you know, if if that's what a big institution is doing, there's a lot of stuff that's too small for them. It doesn't make sense because they have such a big overhead. What can I do to fill in the gaps? There's a lot of other projects that they would like to see happen, but for instance, they're not, you know, $10 million plus contracts. Um, so what what can I do to kind of fill, fill in the gaps there?
0: Mm. All right. So you started helping people and you're putting uh, events together, is that right? And then that led you to um, maybe starting DHB Global. Is that how it happened?
1: Yeah, uh, I started putting together big public events as well as uh, being asked to speak about my experience, uh, about an American working in a military hospital or a Chinese government research facility. That was something that, you know, when I was speaking with other kind of expats in the healthcare circle in China, they went, wait, what? (laughs) You did what? And so it was just, it was my entry point into China. So I didn't think anything of it, but then I slowly started to realize, yeah, you know, it's it's pretty unique. Uh, And that gave me a pretty unique network. And then, yes, it was really just structuring out uh, where I found the most opportunity and the best positioning for me, you know, my skill set, my interests. Um, there are a lot of other things that I could have done. I could have gone and worked at a, you know, big four firm, you know, KPMG or uh, McKinsey or something like this. But it, it just wasn't where I found myself being the most excited, uh, waking up every day, going to a corporate job. And hats off to my friends that work in these firms. Uh, it, it just wasn't the right fit for me right so that's yeah. why i started my own thing i think to me the only reason that a person should start their own company is because there's a big need in the market and nobody else is solving it Um and you have the ability to solve it right so you know that there's somebody in the market that would pay for it now you just need to go and validate that and try and get traction within the market
0: mm, okay so there's DHB global i also found two uh names, I want to check out how, how that fits into the picture. So there's Beijing sure. Health Forum, and then there's also mm-hmm. China Accelerator. Sure. So how are these
1: connected? So Beijing Health Forum uh, has been wrapped up into DHB Global in the sense that any of the events that we do will be on the Beijing Health Forum platform. DHB Global is really just a commercialization arm. Beijing Health Forum is the first thing that I did after I finished up at United Family. And like I said, it was just kind of this um, this experiment of how can I provide value to my network um, and vice versa. When I got a, a couple of years of experience under my belt, then it was, okay, you know, this is really going to formalize and structure out. Started hiring people uh, and worked toward uh, building up DHB Global. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, if, if you look at LinkedIn, there are a few other areas that I'm involved in. China Accelerator um, is one. There's another called Endeavor Global. And a third named Antler, um, and all of these, in some way, shape, or form, uh, I mentor. I, I offer industry insights. I'll speak with some of their startup companies. So all three of those are kind of ecosystems that are are building up uh, really interesting startups around the world. Um, and China Accelerator is based in Shanghai. They've done a phenomenal job of of just you know finding cool digital companies. Some of them digital health. So when it comes to digital health companies, I've I've mentored a handful of uh, companies through there. And for Antler, you know, that's one that's based in Singapore and so uh when they have portfolio companies that are looking into China expansion, um, you know, I, I tend to speak with them or if they're looking for contact or, you know, want to do a roadshow, I can uh, I can assist through that. And for the third one, Endeavour Global, um it's a really interesting organization, they've literally gone and built entire countries innovation ecosystem. Uh, and so they have only recently been involved in Asia. They are not actually in China yet, but some of their portfolio members are in Philippines, I think, in Thailand. And those portfolio companies are looking to expand into China. So about uh, a year plus ago, maybe closer to two years now, uh, I was contacted by some of the, the directors at Endeavor and asked if I would be interested to, to try and help some of their portfolio companies. Mm, okay. So DHB Globo...
0: From what I read on the website, you try to bridge these startups and innovative healthcare solution providers to help them to grow and potentially commercialize their technologies into China, is the main goal?
1: Yeah. Uh, so, specifically, you know, we've worked with diagnostic technologies uh, and therapeutics. Uh, we like to focus on life science companies. Digital health is very, very difficult, and we find it to be. It's hyper local, uh, meaning e- even if you have a phenomenal tech, um, you have to be able to localize it, and that means everything has to be localized. Um, the technology has to sometimes has to be re you know redesigned uh, from top to bottom. But you know, for a, a therapeutic or for a diagnostic machine, it's usually more B two B, so there is a little bit less tailoring to each and the, uh, each and every market. So yeah, we've we've been able to work with some really interesting technologies to bring into the China market thus far.
0: Mm, okay. So how do you discover innovators or startups? Do they come to you or does your team kind of go out and attend events and then try to
1: discover them and build a relationship with them? It's really a little bit of everything. We get about 10 to 15 companies a week that reach out to us and are just interested. Um, so one is just we get kind of cold emails or or, uh, or cold calls uh a second is through the relationships that we have established um through a group like uskip uh which is a consortium in the united states of 133 med schools and r&d institutions uh so we have a, a working relationship with them um so that puts us pretty well in touch with a lot of interesting companies in the us that are looking to the china market but not really sure uh what's the the right direction for them you know where should they land which, uh, which city or province has preferential policy for them and so on and so forth. And then the third is, you know, a lot of it is speaking. I think I was telling you before, I've been in four or five countries in the last three or four weeks. Um, I get asked to go and speak in a lot of places and it's always about healthcare. Sometimes it's about China healthcare. Sometimes it's just about the way that technology is changing. Um, so through a lot of those sorts of events as well, it's people come up and are interested. Uh, you know, hey, I'm an investor, we have this company, um, is there anything else like it in the China market, uh, we should have a conversation. So we've done, you know, we've done some roadshows through those sorts of partnerships, but the majority of it is through kind of in network. So we have the partnerships already. Uh, one that I failed to mention was we have uh, a couple of uh, working relationships with some big European life science ecosystems as well. So helping those kinds of ecosystems, you know, so technology transfer offices or universities try to figure out where they should be doing a roadshow, uh, why they should be registering a company in Sanya versus Shenzhen versus Beijing, uh, what the what the incentives are, plus and minus, and, and certainly what's the path through regulation. So, if, you know, if we have CE certification, what do we need to do next? We have this kind of medical device or this kind of therapeutic. Um, what's the best way to find a, a trustworthy China partner that, you know, that really wants to grow alongside us and is not just a, a speculative or short-term investor you know, really trying to find a marriage partner for your business.
0: Mm, Okay. So this is a good topic. And one of my uh, next questions, because I was curious what type of issues do startups uh, most often run into when they want to maybe get into China? And you mentioned a couple, such as Mm -hmm. finding the right partner, the regulatory pathway. Are there any other um, issues that are common? I have maybe finding capital or for a lot of innovators would they be concerned about you know how to protect their intellectual property and things like that?
1: Sure Um, you know there's a a working list that I have in my head and you touched on most of them it's almost a structural question you know what's the right roadmap for for our technology Mm -hmm. Um, and there's no one size fits all it really depends on what the Chinese market looks like is there a comparative technology in the market if there is how big of an advantage do you really have? And if not, you know, is there something currently in development? And if if there is, you know, how long until they are entering the market? Versus if you were to enter now, how uh, you know how long of a unencumbered kind of com- competitive pathway do you have? Structural also in the sense of if we register a company, where do we put our IP? How do we get money out? That's always a big question. Raising money is not really the hard part. Raising the right sort of money. I hate the term, but people often say smart money versus dumb money. (laughs) I like to think of it as strategic partnerships. You know, who's this right strategic investor for you? Um, because there's a lot of money still sloshing around in China. The real question is besides money, what's the value add? And if it's not much, it's maybe not the right investor for you if you, unless you're just desperate for money and China's, you know, Chinese investors are becoming more sophisticated, especially in the healthcare space. I think, you know, we've all seen the boom and bust of. Uh, sharing economy, etc you know, the direction that healthcare seems to have taken over the past three years is me to me better. So investing in a lot of biotech, biosimilars, so, you know, Ibuprofen plus that's uh instead of it being six hours, it's long acting, so it's twelve to eighteen hours. Which, you know, maybe uh maybe there's a market for it, but it's from an investor's perspective, it's de risk because it's it's very likely to get approved. So that's historically been the approach. But I think as the market matures and as the investors mature, the question is less about how is this going to get into the market versus, you know, is this really going to provide a lot of value for our portfolio? Um, is this going to help us, you know, get a strong return? So going away a little bit from those safer investments and betting a little bit more on some of the really high upside but higher risk projects. So, you know, it's maybe a couple of years away, but I would say that's the direction uh, that companies seem to be going at this point.
0: Mm, okay. So what I'm hearing is not only are you interacting with a lot of innovators, startups, discovering them through uh, different channels, whether they come from your network or speaking engagements, or if they just call you, but also you have to, well, part of your job is also to speak to investors who are interested in investing mm-hmm. these, in, in, in these um, startups. And would you say you also need to vet them in, in a sense? And, and that's how you can advise them and, and find any potential uh, strategic partnerships. You're kind of matchmaking uh, the innovation and the, and, and, the, and the guys with the investment um, resources.
1: Yeah, I'd say that's exactly right. Matchmaking is, is a good way of thinking about it. There, there has to be trust on both sides. You know, the, the in, investors hate being cold called, um, but they like it when you know, they have an established relationship. They understand that when you, when you bring something to them, that it's very much because you understand their needs, right? So it's hard for me to, to bring something to an investor if, if I don't really understand their portfolio and their investment thesis uh, and the sorts of projects that they're looking at right now. And I think that only comes with time. You know, you, you can send me a list of the companies you've invested in in the past, but unless I really understand where, you know, what the direction of the fund is at this point, uh, it, it's just hard to provide value.
0: Okay, great. So you've been in China for eight years now. Have you seen any changes over this time in terms of, we know that China is going through a healthcare reform, a lot of things are catching up to maybe international standards, and and the growth is is there. Um, What have you seen in terms of people's desire to do cross-border commercialization? And also, now that you mentioned. We're experiencing a bit of a slump right now. So what are,
1: what are your thoughts about this? Sure. So I'll just kind of break it down into the good, the bad, and the ugly. <laughs> um, what I see as, as the good in terms of healthcare system changes, I'd say there has been a, a huge push to make, you know, at the upper half of the pyramid, to make care more accessible, to try and grow the quality of doctor, and to make private insurance a little bit easier to access. When I first got to China, the numbers were roughly private insurance was about three percent of all insurance used in in country, and it's still not really big. But I believe the number now is closer to eight or nine percent of total market cap. Um, so it's it's certainly more than doubled, and it's projected to double again in the next few years. So you know, once it's close to fifteen to twenty percent, that, that's going to be a very substantial market, and that begins to free up a lot of you know, the you know, top half this of the socioeconomic pyramid to really cutting edge technologies, you know, really precise cancer treatments and, and better diagnostics so that they can find out what's wrong with them sooner. There's been a bit of a pushback on medical tourism. Historically, uh, a lot of patients in China would just, you know, go to Japan or Korea for beauty treatments, these sorts of things, or, or Thailand. But more and more of this technology is um, housed inside of healthcare zones across various cities in China. So there's a lot more kind of domestic treatments that's starting to happen. You know, and and the third that's really just now starting is a reform for general practice or primary care medicine in China. And that's a really exciting development. And there you can really start to see how AI could play a role to amplify the average doctor in China so that they can do better at diagnosing and, and better at treating and prescribing drugs. So, uh, it's been really interesting to see how, uh, the healthcare market has begun to change from, from a patient's perspective. You know, I still like to go periodically just to some of the bigger hospitals in Beijing because they're, they're not far from where I stay. You see a lot more machines for queuing, you know, the, the Guahao process is far less painful than when I first got here. Um, there are a lot of digital health apps, which is great. But I think you still have a lot of low-hanging fruit issues. You know, tracking your own personal EHR, your electronic health record, uh, within a single hospital sometimes uh, is still very painful. You have to get that paper book and carry it from one department to the next. Your your blood results you have to carry from one to the next. So there's still a lot of issues that need to be solved. And I think that's the first was the good. This is the bad. The ugly I think is still the the difficulty in. The really larger part of the pie, rural healthcare in China. 80% of what are called Sandia A hospitals or tier 3A hospitals, the best in China, 80% of them are in Beijing and Shanghai, mm-hmm. still today. So if you're not in a big city, um, unfortunately, the quality of care that you're going to receive on average, it's just not very good. And furthermore, the way that doctors are trained outside of big, uh, big medical schools, which are also found in big cities, uh, is, is not nearly up to international standards. Uh, and to be very honest, they still don't even pass domestic medical boards. Um, so don't quote me on the numbers, but I know it's the majority of medical school graduates in China. If they graduate in the top half of the class, there's a very good chance they will not go into industry. Uh, sorry, they won't go into practicing, they'll go into industry. Uh, they might even go and work for a medical journal. The last number that I'd heard was a medical school graduate in Beijing for the first few years as a resident doctor makes less than a taxi driver in Beijing. So why are you going to beat yourself up is, is the question. So, you know, that's still, that's still part of the ugly. Um, I know quite a few of the people working on the health systems reform. Anybody that's curious to learn more, you can go to, uh, Peking, uh, so it's the, uh, school of economic Development. Uh, there's a professor there named Li Ling doing some phenomenal research and, uh, you know, any of the papers that she's published over the last several years. Uh, I believe it was her and a few other people who had helped to write the health reform for the 13th five-year plan. And so that the plan is is very strong. I think the difficulties in implementation and with anything in China, um, you have a lot of entrenched interest and, and you have a very opaque political system. There's a lot that's changing. But, you know, for instance, another big ugly is for the longest time, the way that hospitals would kind of make their money or cover their costs is by overprescribing drugs mm-hmm. and, and treatments and, and um, diagnostics. But there are a lot of pilot projects now to separate the pharmacy from the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, and so 40% was the number. 40% of a hospital's mm-hmm. revenue used to come from drug sales. That number is rapidly shrinking. And the question is, well, so where does the money come from now? So we'll, we'll have to wait and see. It's, it doesn't seem like it's all going to be just subsidized from, from the central governments, but, um, you know, we, uh, you need your hospitals across, you know, rural China. Um, so we'll see. It's, it's such a, a vast country, uh, with so many issues that, you know, only in a country like China are you, are you going to come across these? And, you know, objectively speaking, you get some of the best and the brightest in China working on these problems and, and they're very, very passionate and very, very, fair in their approach to, to trying to solve these so you know i'm, I'm bullish uh long term on how this shakes out for china i'm i'm really excited by the market mm. a lot of these
0: sound uh quite familiar um because i remember there was a policy called zero markup policy for for uh to kind of control hospitals so they don't mark up their drug prices anymore, yeah. um, and instead the government is supposed to kind of give them more subsidies or um, help them in other ways financially right um and the other one you mentioned was uh yeah, I guess the um distribution of the best hospitals and the best doctors, they're mostly uh concentrated in the bigger cities and, and sometimes we'd read in the news that there are uh violent clashes between the the doctors and the and the patients. Um Oh oh yeah. And yeah, I um, guess that still happens today?
1: Um I, I don't know. I mean I, I can uh kind of give uh a, a short uh a short story. Um, I remember coming across a few, uh, a few interactions while I was at some of the hospitals I had worked at where, yeah, patients got pretty irritated. I was in the office with some of these doctors. Um, and I always wondered why there were these big, scary looking guys out, out in front uh, of these, you know, important doctors' offices until I saw a patient come in and he was very irate. Um, I figured it out pretty quickly. Uh, I remember hearing about hospitals in Chongqing. Um, you know, they would do emergency training. And I was like, "Oh, emergency training for what?" They said, "Oh, you know, if a patient comes in uh, and they're irate and they have a weapon." I was like, "Oh, <laughs> okay." I didn't know that was an issue.
0: Hmm. Are they mostly upset about the, I guess, the quality of services they're provided, or or just how they're they're being treated? Because uh, I know I know one of the issues in China is the uh, a lot of these really good hospitals. They think te- they seem to be they tend to be overcrowded because everybody mm-hmm. goes there, right?
1: Yeah. You know, it's it's never a single variable. Uh, a very common issue or complaint is, you know, still today in China, things are kind of commodified. You pay for a good, you expect to get what you paid for. So, you know, hey, I paid you to, to cure my grandma's cancer. Why did she die? What, what happened? I paid you the money. I held up my end of the bargain. You didn't hold up yours. What's going on? Mm-hmm. And so there's not the time and the soft skills almost. Um, not, not everywhere. Um, but sometimes it's that the patient just doesn't understand. Uh, and sometimes the doctor doesn't have the time to explain every complication, every possible risk. And, and, you know, you have to have an attentive audience as well. Uh, and so it's, it's really about each, you know, the doctor being able to put it into language that somebody from a small town in China is going to understand. Sometimes that's going to be a challenge. And sometimes it's about the, um, the patient just not wanting to have, have gone through what they did. And the only person that they hold responsible for that is the, the surgeon that performed the the surgery that did not lead to curative or palliative care, etc. So it's, it's still very culturally sensitive. Um, you know, something else that really shocked me was DNR, do not resuscitate. Mm. Um, they don't hold up in court in China. So it's pretty common that you'll get, uh, you know, the, the worst possible series of events where you'll have somebody in the family go in for treatment. They die. Or they, they have a DNR, but then the children of the family member will say, no, 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 I still want you to try and bring them back. And then they end up either in a vegetative state or, you know, really suffering. And then you get the family fighting uh, for, for a long period of time afterwards. So all of these things happen. I think there's still not enough meat on the bones uh, for some of the healthcare policy. But China's a huge country. And I think much to people's surprise, you can go and look on you buy do it a little bit. You can find PPP, public private partnerships, and you can see all of the pilot projects happening all across China, um, where they're really trying to solve some of these issues. And you can, like, you can get pretty granular, like how many are happening within each province Mm. and what the problems are that they're trying to solve. So like, there are tens of thousands of these happening across China at any time. So, you know, uh, 70 years of development to get to where it is, really 40 for the economic side of things. You know, it, it takes a little bit longer than 40 years to build everything up to perfection. Um, so China still has has areas to improve.
0: Mm, interesting.
1: And yeah, yeah. All, the, all these um,
0: topics, I'll try to include, you know, the, the relevant links in the show notes so our listeners can do their own research as well. The other thing you mentioned, yeah. I just want to touch <laughs> briefly upon was you mentioned how um, in hospitals, you know, there's more machines, more technology. And you mentioned the, mm-hmm. the, the Guahao uh, system. Yeah. Um, is that like the, the triage kind of process in hospitals and, and how they're uh, improving
1: it now with technology? Can you go into that a little bit? Sure. Um, so, you know, if any of the listeners are in Beijing, uh, I highly recommend you to go to the Chaoyang Hospital. It's just south of Li Twin, It's maybe a 10-minute walk. It's just a, a mammoth hospital. And it used to be that the first thing you see in the morning when you walk in is just lines of people, just droves of people, queuing to speak with somebody to give them a ticket. Um you can now use your phone if you have a Chinese Shenzhenjung, if you have a Chinese ID, and you can register ahead of time and you can show up and actually get a lot of your initial information plugged in just through a machine, little kiosks. It's it's still not perfect because some of the information has to be verified ultimately by a person for liability issues. But getting a lot of the printouts and the results um, has become a lot more efficient. I even saw, I think it's uh, in Shenzhen, uh, there's a Ping An uh, one-minute clinic. So you can go into a little booth and uh, you'll have a teleconsultation with a doctor. Uh, and through that, they will try and prescribe a medicine. And then within that booth, they have the top 100 prescribed drugs. So if you can actually get a diagnosis, then you can potentially leave with the treatments in hand after a quick teleconsultation. So hospitals and clinics... You know, people are really trying to create more efficiency uh, and easier access for patients. So there's there's a lot changing right now. Mm, very interesting.
0: Okay, great. Um, let's see. Okay, I have a, a couple of more questions. I don't want to keep you too long, but I, I do want sure. to <laughs> run these by you. Sure. Okay. So one of the um, topics of our modern times is the trade war. Um, mm-hmm. So we know on a global scale that it's impacting the economy, but I'm curious... From what you've seen through DHB Global or um, just mm-hmm. speaking to different innovators, startups or investors in China, has mm-hmm. this trade war impacted the healthcare ecosystem in China or how people are perceiving the outlook?
1: You know, uh, this ties pretty well into something you had asked me earlier that we didn't get around to, which is um, the, the downturn for investment. You would think that it would have a pretty strong negative impact because of Cifius and FINRA and just the the, the blockage of cross-border deals. But what I've seen is an uptick in interest from overseas. So US and Europe, medical schools um, and R&D institutions and, and even companies are more interested now in the Chinese market. And within the Chinese investment circle, uh, very recently I've spoken with a handful of firms, investment firms that, you know, have multiple funds and they're transitioning some of their investment funds from things like e-commerce and some of these smart consumption or upgrading consumption type investment themes into healthcare uh, because they see that as a a really strong leverage and and strongly supported industry uh, in the Chinese economy moving forward. So from an outsider's perspective, I've heard of quite a few healthcare deals that are blocked by Cifius. It does happen. But I'd say for, for growth stage companies, you know, ones that are just looking to get that first major injection of capital or looking to have access to uh, the Chinese pharma market, it's a really exciting time because, you know, there are, for instance, projects now to do dual uh, regulatory approval in through, I think Europe and China, certainly through the US and China. Um, so historically, if you have a new drug, Uh, you need to get it approved in one market and then bring it to China and start over with the approval process, right? So it defeats the purpose, but they're trying to streamline that. And so there are already, um, fast track approvals and it can be as fast as six months, I think was the fastest I heard. If you have U.S. or CE European mark. Um, so China's really trying to get ahead of the curve and you know, they, there are a lot of things that they've done trying to improve the quality of manufacturing. The government is Really gotten heavy-handed with some of the manufacturing sites in South China in the Greater Bay Area, and going around and just shutting them down if they can't hit international standards. I think I heard by 2020, so which is right around the corner. We'll Mm -hmm. we'll see. uh, You know, hold their feet to the fire. We'll see how many of those close. But there's been a huge push to try and get you know international expertise to try and help these companies in South China be able to manufacture to the quality standards that's required. I mean, just everywhere you look, it's you know issues where. Um, either there are solutions in hand or people are trying to, uh, to just improve the quality of care.
0: Mm, okay. And then we also mentioned, you know, before we start recording, um, uh, the Belt and Road initiative and also, yeah. uh, there is also a made in China 2025 or 2030, yep. <laughs> 2025. Yep. Yeah. yeah. yeah so, can you so, tell me so on so the high a... level, um, yeah, these, these, uh,
1: policies and initiatives. Sure. So there are three, actually. I would say, you know, BRI is, is one, Dailu. Uh, the second is, uh, made in China 2025. And the third is called Healthy China 2030. So there's one specifically mm. for healthcare. Um, at a high level, you know, n- not a politician. So, so take this with a grain of salt. <laughs> Belt and Road is kind of the Marshall Plan equivalents in China. Um, so it's trying to expand, uh, some of China's industries along Central Asia. All the way into Eastern Europe and all throughout Southeast Asia and South Asia. So it's been really interesting as I've traveled through each of these areas. I actually just got back from Pakistan and was in Karachi giving a, a keynote there on healthcare innovation and the future of healthcare and to see how areas like Pakistan and China with CPEC, the China Pakistan economic corridor, how they're trying to work together. So that at, kind of at a high level for healthcare stuff. Is what it looks like. So practically speaking, it's kind of building infrastructure, uh, and then leveraging Chinese tech potentially to, to be the software inside of those hospitals. So building the infrastructure, the hardware first, and then trying to help bring in the software made in China 2025 is at a high level. It's trying to get by, bi- you know, China to catch up in biotech. So things like CRISPR, Cas9, things like CAR T and, and gene therapies, uh, single cell therapies. And AI as well. So, trying to have a you know, diagnostic companion, for instance, so think uh, IBM Watson or um, you know the next generation of that, where you have an AI diagnostic uh, machine that helps you think through the logic, or, or just helps the average doctor in China be better at their job. You, you know, if they're not in a big city in a big hospital with all the fancy tech at their fingertips. So, specific to healthcare, I think those are the major pushes uh, in Made in China. 2025. And healthy China 2030 is really, it's almost like a a quality report for the Chinese government. Where do we think we need to be by 2030? How many diabetes patients do we have now? What's the burden that we're facing? And what are the numbers that we'd like to hit? So by the numbers, I think China has 110 million diabetics in the world today. That's one in three. There are 330 in the world, 330 million. Mm. Uh, And at a patient population rate of roughly 10%. Right. So roughly 10 percent of China has diabetes, which is higher uh, than in other parts of the developed world. But China also has this really big population burden of what's called pre-diabetics. And so these are people who have some symptoms and some signs that haven't developed full diabetes. And this can go along the spectrum for other chronic diseases. So patients with pre-hypertension, hypertension, cholesterol or high risk for stroke, cerebrovascular disease. Those are some of the major uh, issues in China, as well as cancer. So early diagnosis for cancer. Um, so trying to identify where China is right now, what the, the burden of these are, and you know what they think they need to be at for lowering the, the amounts of patients with these diseases by 2030. Uh, and then that also includes things like health literacy, uh, which means really understanding your own healthcare system and where you should go for treatments or for prevention. So there's there's a lot to unpack there. If anybody listening is really interested, um, the Healthy China 2030 policy is not one that gets a lot of airtime yet. Look into it. it. It definitely gives you a good sense of where the government's thinking is in terms of the major burdens and the major opportunities. Um, and then you can cross-reference that with, you know, what are some of the technologies in the market today?
0: Mm, okay, great. Thanks for the recap. I always get um, Made in China 2025 and Healthy China 2030 mixed up. Um, so yeah, yeah so th- it's it's great that you can uh, clarify some of these for us um so yeah now thinking about it, it's almost 2020 so we're five years away from made in china 2025 so it would be interesting to see what happens in the next uh five six years um leading up to that so yeah before we wrap up can you tell us you know what you have planned for the rest of the year and if there are any um speaking engagements or events that you're putting together for um, next year?
1: Sure. Um, So there's a lot coming up yet between now and the end of the year. Uh, My company is helping to co-organize an event in the middle of October uh, where we're bringing a lot of these big U.S. medical schools and R&D institutions to China and really just doing a matchmaking event with some Chinese counterparts, Chinese investors, government zones, so kind of healthcare zones where you can, you know, do really interesting stuff, uh, put together a private hospital that's wholly foreign owned. So that's October 17th in Beijing. Mm-hmm. Um, tickets are, are still on sale for that. I will be again in, uh, I'll likely be in Davos in January, February, mm-hmm. uh, where I have a, a project through World Economic Forum uh, that's that's dealing with healthcare data uh, and transparency and privacy. Uh, and then I will be co-chairing an event in Islamabad, Pakistan, to talk about some of the Belt and Road uh, and CPEC uh, propositions between China and Pakistan, and that'll be in March. So I think that's March 10th through the 12th, uh, roughly those dates. Um, so you can certainly find a link to that as well. Um, and between now and then, we have, you know, we have more than enough on our plates, but we're always looking for really interesting partners in the area. Um, and I was looking for, you know, that, that next really exciting, uh, healthcare technology. So if anybody listening is just really curious to, to connect, um, we'll make sure that, uh, any of my contact info is here and always, uh, always interested to engage with people also within the region and within the area of, of healthcare uh, investments and innovation.
0: Mm, okay. Thanks, Doug. So I'll, I'll try to make sure, um, I'll put these relevant links in the podcast show notes and is there, uh, a- a good way to connect with you. How can people find you if they're like interested in these events and if they want to contact uh, DHB Global? Is, is the best way through the website or just email you or how? Sure. How uh, they, yeah.
1: Sure. Website. Uh, you know, you can find us online at dhb.global. You can find me on Twitter. Uh, you can find us. We have a, a fairly active Facebook uh, page uh, for our company, and you can also find me on Twitter. I'd say those are the easiest. Uh, email is the one that I just am, am religiously checking, but any of those would work. We we have it feed into the email system ultimately.
0: Okay, great. Thanks so much, Doug. Um, yeah, thank you for coming on the podcast. I, I can probably talk to you for hours on <laughs> <laughs> topics on China, but, um, yeah, would really appreciate uh, you sharing your insights with, with us. And, um, Absolutely. Well, l- looking forward to following you and DHB Global, and um, yeah, seeing how your business grows, and maybe we'll chat again soon closer to uh, Made in China
1: 2025. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I think it would be really interesting to uh, to just kind of check in, you know, a year or two from now to to see how things uh, have developed. I think there were a couple of forecasts that uh, that I gave. Just you know, uh, hold me accountable. See see how see how accurate things were. Oh, yeah, yeah. Thank you. so, Thank you so much for the, uh, the hospitality and the invitation. This has been a lot of fun. Really appreciate it, Jonathan.
0: Okay, thanks. Thanks so much, Doug. Um, and if you want to support the podcast, please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. And um, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and anywhere else really. That's it for the podcast. And thank you very much for listening.